starting a new division of the Old Testament. We get to look at the books of the Bible again. Um, remember we did the first section, the five books of the law, otherwise known as Pentateuch. We've been in history for a long time, from Joshua all the way through Esther. Twelve books. What? Twelve books. Twelve books. Okay, great. <laughs> Some of them pretty long. Um, now we're in the five books of poetry and wisdom. This just says poetry, but most people say poetry and wisdom. Uh, starting with the book of Job. So, looking at our timeline that Matthew created for us, um, we don't know exactly where the book of Job fits. Um, it may have fit way back here toward the end of the book of Genesis. Um, it could be later, you know, even into the book of Judges or so. Uh, there aren't any really good indications of time in it. The um, Two of the friends of Job probably were descendants of Abraham. One, one through um, uh, Esau, he was an Edomite, uh, the guy that was from from um, Teman, Eliphaz, I think it was. And then um, one was a descendant of Abraham through his wife Keturah. Um, what was his name? Uh, Bildad the Shuhite. The Shuhites were descended from uh, Keturah. So probably, you know, if if we're correct about those two guys, then uh, it was after Abraham. Uh, but there's nothing really Jewish about the book, so that you can't tell whether it was given before the law was given or after. We find Job offering his own sacrifices. Um, so you know, he pretty clear he wasn't a, a Levite, so he wouldn't have been living in, under the law of Moses uh, when he did that. Uh, I'm not going to do any maps for this book. Uh, we do know somewhat where these things take place, mostly in the Arabian Desert. But the reason why I'm going to do maps is that that's not the point of the book. It's, it's really not. The, it really doesn't make any difference where it takes place. The, the, the book is um, it's not in the section uh, we call history. It's, it's in this poetry and wisdom section. And the book is intended to teach us Lessons that don't have anything to do with time or with locality. Okay. Yeah. Yes, but that's not that's not the that's not the woman. Rahab is a is a, is a word that means a sea monster. Yes. Yeah, I know that used to throw me off too. Yeah, no, um, no, it doesn't have anything to do with the the prostitute that that took in those two spies. Um, all right, good, good question. Uh, this is a zoomed-in version to see the where we are. But I'm going to move on um, to our outline. Um, the book is bracketed with a prologue and an epilogue. Um, and this morning, of course, the prologue, we're going to be doing that. We won't get to the epilogue for another three or four weeks. Um, those are the two portions of the book that are written in prose. You may notice how, if you're just looking in most Bibles, 
it's formatted differently. And so when we start chapter 3, the formatting changes, and from then on until the last chapter, it's all in poetry. The, the, we have three sections here that are all in this poetry section. The dialogue is a dispute between Job and his friends. And uh, we'll be doing the first, first two sections here. Job, one chapter of Job cursing the day of his birth. Then we have the first round in the dispute. The way the rounds go, uh, Job, Job started out by cursing the day of his birth. But then uh, the three friends always go in the same order. And after each of the friends, Job speaks. And then once all three have, have finished, then you finish one round. <laughs> and and we're, going, we're going to be in the very last of the first round at the end of today's uh, reading because we're going through chapter 12. Job's speech goes for a couple more chapters after that, but it's in the very last of that round. And then after the third round, there's going to be an interlude on wisdom. That's Job speaking. And then there's going to be some monologues by Job and a guy we don't even hear about until late is Elihu and then God and then finally the, the epilogue. Tracy. I was wondering, I was reading this last time, I think it's chapters 8, not 8, 8, 9. Is he, is he still arguing with his friends or is he talking to God? Uh, oh, Job jumps back and forth. Yeah, he jumps back and forth. Sometimes he talks to God and sometimes he talks to his friends. Um... And you can't always. It's you. It's he sort of slides into it. You have to kind of be thinking. Hmm. This doesn't sound like something you'd say to his friends, does it? <laughs> yeah. You just have to watch. We'll, we'll look at that as we go along. That's a good point. All right. So um, the book starts. There was a man in the land of Uz. Uz was probably a little bit east of of Edom, in the desert. Whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And and then it talks about his prosperity, and he, you know, he had ten children, uh, all kinds of animals, which was the way wealth would have been measured in that society. He was very wealthy, very many servants, which means slaves. Um, he was the greatest of all the men of the East. And then it tells something about his character. Of course, we already had his character; he was upright, fearing God. But then, when his children would would have feasts. They apparently were a very close family. They'd invite all their all, all their siblings to, to their feast. And then when it was over, Job would he would offer a sacrifice for them. Uh, he says, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, so he he did this continually. I mean, here's a man that's very much devoted to God. Now that you know, that was just a perhaps. We don't we don't really know anything about the character of his children, although uh, it's not uncommon that children would have the same character as their father, and I don't. I wouldn't see any reason to ch- to suggest otherwise. But they're not. They're not major players in the story. You just you just have a really good man here, um, and later on in the book we learn more about what it was like back in those days for him. He he, he has some flashbacks when when he tells about how respected he was. If anyone needed wisdom, they came to him. I mean, Job. Job was not only righteous; he was not only rich; he was very wise and and, and highly respected. Now we come in verse six. The scene changes to heaven. 
There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And this conversation ensues. And the, uh, the conversation ends up with the question, why does Job obey God? And, and this, this question is kind of a, it's a proxy question for the overall question, why does anybody obey God? And, and, and God clearly believes that Job respects God for who God is. And Satan doesn't say it in, in exactly these words, but he thinks God's just paying Job to obey him. <laughs> and, and this really comes back to the same subject I preached about two weeks ago when we talked about loving God. What does that mean? Why, why do we do the things God tells us to do? Um, clearly there are some people who, whose obedience to God is, is just because they like what God gives to them. God's paying them. But usually, there come times in, in people's lives when that's not enough. And it, and it then becomes obvious whether they're serving God for who God is or whether they're just serving God because of what God might, might give to them. Yeah, but that, this is Satan's view. Um, you know, you've put this hedge around him. You know, you've blessed everything. You know, take all these possessions away and he'll curse you to your face. So, look what Satan is really doing here. Satan is slandering the whole human race. He claims every human is totally selfish. That's what he's talking about. You know, God, do you think Job's so great? Job is just as selfish as every other one of your creatures. It's just that it's in his own self-interest to serve you because you're paying him. But look also what he's... Um, what he's saying about God. He's slandering God because he claims the only way anyone would obey God is if God pays them. What a terrible thing to say. I mean, and, and, and God is just very patiently dealing with the, these insults and saying, okay, you're welcome to put this to the test. And... So in chapter 1, um, Satan just does... I mean, he picks the the, um, the worst time, you could say, to bring these things on Job. Here, here his children are all having a big feast. It was a very happy time. And in one day, he just wipes everything out. All of Job's sons are, and daughters are killed. Um, all of his possessions are stolen from him. I'll just mention in verse 15, the Sabaeans attacked them. The Sabaeans were the people from Sheba. This is the same place where the Queen of Sheba later came from to visit Solomon. And again, we know that's in Arabia. So that's just another geographical hint here. But the book, of course, is not about geography. It's about, does God... Does Job fear God because He's being paid? And this first test, Job passes with flying colors. I mean, Job is not a stoic. Job is not saying, nothing that happens to me affects me. I do not feel it. That was, that was not Job. Job felt it very much. He, he, he says he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell to the ground and worshipped, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
he, he recognized that God had the right. God had given him everything he had. God had the right to take these things away. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Well, Satan's not going to give up that easily. <laughs> Chapter 2. Um, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came before them to present himself. And yeah, the same conversation went on before, except that now God brings up the fact that, hey, you know, you, you incited me to ruin Job for no reason, but he's proved you're wrong. Well, Job, and Satan's not willing to admit he's wrong. No, no. He still has, Job still has his health. Um, all that a man has, he will give for his life. So God then gives Satan permission to, to apply that test. And he, and he just gives Job the very worst thing possible. Of course, we're not surprised. He, you know, when he was allowed to touch Job's possessions, he did it in just the most devastating way he could. And now here he is with this terrible illness. These boils. We're going to learn more about this illness later on in the book. It's it's more than what's just described in these two verses. But if it, you know any of you have ever had a boil, you know just how painful it is. Now he's got these boils all over his body. Um, he took a pot shirt, which is a piece of broken pottery, just to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. And now even his wife caves in. She apparently handled up to this point, but she caves in. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job's not willing to do that. Um, he says, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. And so at this point, we have this test The test is over. <laughs> Job passed it. And in fact, the test is completely settled in these first two chapters. Job proves that he serves God for who God is and not for what God gives him. Satan doesn't even appear again in the book. And the question, this particular question, does not come up again. The question is settled. But there's another question. And this is going to come up when we when we get to chapter four, and the bulk of the book is going to is going to have to do with that additional question. And indeed, Job's trials are certainly not over. He's passed the test, but there's still some major trials. Job has friends. They come from different places. They've arranged to meet. They've heard what happened to him, but. But hearing is not the same thing as seeing. They're just so shocked, they don't even recognize Him when they see Him. It said they raised their voices and wept. Each of them tore His robe. They threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with Him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to Him for they saw that His pain was very great. I'm sure none of us have ever experienced pain like Job did. And these friends had never seen anything like it. And they obviously care very much about Job. And the only thing they can do is just sit with him. There's nothing they can say. I mean, to say something would, would just be to make it worse. I mean, what can you say when someone's in a 
in such pain and there's nothing you could do about it. So they just wait and let Job lead the way. And so chapter 3, Job leads the way. Let the day perish in which I was to be born and the night which said a boy is conceived. And he goes on in a very poetic way just cursing the day that he, he was born. I wish I, and basically he's saying, I wish I had never been born. Well, can anyone blame him? When he's experiencing such grief, you know, lost his whole family, lost all of his possessions, lost all the respect of anybody in the community, and he's in just constant pain. Constant, constant pain. He talks later on about how you know, during the daytime he longed for the night, and during the night he long, you know, it just drags on and on. And, and he gets terrified by dreams. It's just it's a horrible illness what he, he has. And so then in verse eleven he starts saying, Why did I not die at birth? You know, if I had to be born, we could have just cut the whole thing short. Why go through all this pain? Then in verse twenty, why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul? Now he moves on to another level, and he's saying, Why am I still alive? God, why won't you let me die? And that's what he's asking for in twenty through twenty six. Please, God, let me die. That's what he's asking. Now it's time for the three friends to step in. Yeah, Tracy. I was just wondering why did he wait till the end before he was blessed again? Why Come. did he wait till the end of the book? He blessed Job with his. Well, why did God wait? Why didn't God just come out right now? If God had come out right now, we wouldn't have understood the problem. We wouldn't have understood the solution. Um, the, the question you're asking is the exact same question we all have to face at times in our lives. Why, why do you go through pain? Why do I go through pain? Why doesn't God just immediately come through and solve the problem? And, and part of the answer to that is that we learn from the pain. There's things that we learn about God that we would never have learned if we didn't go through it. And that's very true with Job. In the end, Job is going to know things about God that God could never have told him even unless Job had gone through these things. So what you're asking is a good question. Alright. Now, most of the rest of the book is concerned with this one basic question. Why is Job suffering? And Job's friends reason this out through a set of propositions. Now, they don't put it, you know, proposition one, proposition two. You have to pick it out of what they're saying. But I'm quite convinced that this really is their reasoning. Um, They don't start by saying God is just, but as you go through their reasoning, they certainly do say God is just. And they think God and they think Job's arguments is making God to be unjust. Okay, so step one, God is just. Who would disagree with that? Alright. Therefore God punishes the wicked by making them suffer. And God never makes the righteous suffer because that would be unjust. Conclusion since Job is suffering, he must be wicked. They don't know what he's done, which is which is part of the argument as they go through the book, but he's got to be Wicked, they've never seen anybody suffer this much. Job has to have a terrible sin. To say otherwise would be to make God unjust. And that's the, the point that, that, this, this, that their argument hinges on. 
whenever Job disagrees with them, he is calling God unjust. That's what, that's what they say. And, and so, the more Job proclaims his innocence, the more convinced they are that he's a very wicked person. <laughs> and and this, is, this is a challenge in debate. And, and, and I'm not just talking about formal debate. Even, I mean, all of us have, have discussions with people we disagree with. And it's a challenge when you have someone who has certain presuppositions and he doesn't realize that some of those presuppositions are wrong. And so, when you disagree with him, he can do nothing but conclude that you must be a very terrible person because you're disagreeing with things that are fundamental. I mean, you're just like Job. You're calling God unjust. What a terrible person you are, Job. And they go back and forth like this. Uh, the three friends never do change their their presuppositions to, to the whole thing until finally God speaks up. Job is having to work through this. Um, and let me just mention here one of the one of the issues that sometimes I think we think well today we could solve this problem easier because. Heaven and hell were unknown in Job's day. And, and we look at it and we say, aha, well, see, righteous people suffer in this life. Wicked people might, be, might do well. But after they die, the problem is solved. Job didn't know about heaven and hell. Job's concept of an afterlife was quite vague and it was not very pleasant. You watch as you read through. You cannot read the book of Job and impose the New Testament concept of heaven onto that book. You'll misunderstand the book if you do that. Um, throughout the Old Testament, the afterlife was viewed just as a place of darkness. Um, it, it, it was not looked at as, oh goody, I get to go to die and be with God. It was never looked like, on, on like that in the Old Testament. That's a New Testament concept. It's a valid concept, but God chose not to reveal the truths about heaven in the Old Testament. So, Job can't point to heaven and hell to solve the problem, and I think it's good that he cannot. It, as I said here, to many Christians today, the concept of heaven and hell solves the problem. I don't think it does. In my judgment, the question of God's fairness just gets pushed to a, another level when you bring heaven and hell in. It never is solved. Um, and I think that we have to listen to God's answer at the end of this book, just like Job did. And I'm not going to steal the punchline of the book, but um, we're going to have to wait till we get there and see how God explains it. Yeah, Rob. Well, at the end of one of the chapters, Job says, uh, you know, can you just give me a moment of, uh, of something that's basically before I go, before I'm dead. That was the point where I thought that he was talking about. You know, maybe in that he admitted that God is going to put a judgment on heaven based on something like that. That's what I took from that. The last little bit. Uh, not looking at it with them not having any knowledge of There's no evidence that anyone back then knew about hell. Just like they didn't know about heaven. Um, what, he, what Job wants is in this life. 
Can you, can you, you God, can you just let up for a minute before I die? You know, give me a little bit of peace. That's what he's saying. Um, he wants to die only because, I mean, death is not a pleasant thing, but it'd be better than what he's got. That's his view. I don't think he even knew about hell. Of all of the debate in the book is concerned with this life. Now, once or twice, um, Job does mention, well, you say that God's going to bring punishment on this wicked guy's children. I say, let God bring it upon the, the guy himself. <laughs> what does he care after he's dead? <laughs> and and if, you, if you listen to that, you realize their whole conception is this life. And as far as they can see, in this life, is God just or is God not just? The three friends say, God is just, therefore Job must be wicked because God wouldn't make a mistake. And Job says, I'm not so sure God is just because I know I'm, I'm not wicked. I don't deserve this. That's, that's really how the, how the debate goes. Other, other thoughts? Alright, good. Um, so let's look in chapter 4. And Eliphaz is the first to speak from Tema, a city in Edom. He says, If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many of you with strength and weak hands. And so it says, you know, Job, you know, in the past you've you've been given spirit you've given spiritual guidance to other people. Will you be willing to listen to some spiritual guidance now? And of course we know what he's going to say. His spiritual guidance is verse seven, remember now whoever perished being innocent, or or where were their upright destroyed? That's Eliphaz's fundamental point, and all, and the other friends believe that as well. God is just; He does not destroy the innocent; He does not destroy the upright. And in fairness to Eliphaz, when we look at our lives and when we look at the lives of the people we know around us. For the most part, isn't what Eliphaz says true? I mean, if you if if you see somebody die before he's thirty years old, what's the most likely reason? Sin. That's right. Sin. You know, the, maybe the guy's a, 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 an alcoholic or a drug addict, or he gets so he's drunk driving. I mean, maybe he joins a gang and gets killed that way. I mean, all kinds of things like that. Righteous people tend to live longer than, than unrighteous people. So Eliphaz is not, you know, he's not all wet here. I mean, what he's saying um, makes a lot of sense. And verse 8, according to what I've seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Well, what I've seen too, <laughs> that happens. <laughs> um, and so then in verse 12, he starts this thing which is kind of a strange the whole rest of the chapter. A word was brought to me stealthily. and He has this spirit that, that appears to him at, at night. He doesn't really see it. It's just he, the spirit passed by and he felt it. He, he, um, and here's what the spirit says. Can mankind be just before God? Can a maker be pure before his, his maker? And the answer the spirit gives is no, he can't. Now that is true. None of us can be righteous 
in terms of, of ourselves. And God is so far above us that the, the most righteous person imaginable who does just the most wonderful deeds is completely black compared to God's white brightness. But this doesn't really answer the point. And that's the thing that puzzles me here. I mean, Eliphaz is, is so pleased that he's bringing this up. But it proves too much because if no human being can be just before God, then what about Eliphaz? What about the other two friends? How come they're not sitting there with boils on them too if this is true of all flesh? So I'm a little bit puzzled about that argument. Uh, maybe I'm just missing something. Um, but anyway, he goes on. And I, I want to. This is my last chart. No, it's not my last chart. Um, I'm going to jump back to the first one again. Oh, I, I want to ask who spoke truth in this book? This is something Ralph and I were talking about before the class started, in fact. Um, keep in mind, in the debate, the three friends, between the three friends of Job, nobody had the true answers. We're going to go through. You know, 30-some chapters, and no one has the right answers. They're just bringing up the problems. But much of what the friends said was true. In fact, I think most of what they said was true. What they knew was fine. It was what they didn't know, and didn't, that, that was the problem. And unfortunately, they, did, they didn't know that they didn't know. <laughs> and so they'll make these statements. This statement is fine. Can, uh, can mankind be just before God? Clearly, they're speaking the truth. It's their conclusions that are the problem. Um, see, everything had to fit within their view of how things were. That was their problem. They, and so they were going beyond the bounds of what they knew. And with Job, much of what Job said was true. Most of it. But he also made mistakes. So... Um, we can learn a lot as we read, but we have, to, we have to compare what we learn with God's final answer in the book and with what the rest of the Bible teaches. Otherwise, we're, we could end up making the same mistakes that, that the three friends made. Um, questions up to this point? Alright, so um, I'll go back and we'll, we'll keep it on this other chart here. Um, In chapter 5, verse 6, this is still Eliphaz. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. The point is, Job, you're, you're suffering affliction. It just, affliction does not just amazingly appear out of nothing. It doesn't just spring up out of the dust. There's got to be a cause for it. And of course the cause is, Job, you must have sinned. So he, he, he counsels Job in verse 8, but as for me, I would seek God. In other words, if I was in your shoes, Job, I would seek God. And, and he's thinking back on Job's first speech, and, and Job never said anywhere in that chapter, God, I'm sorry that I sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? That's what Eliphaz wants to hear. Instead, he's saying, God, how come you don't just let me die? You know, why are you treating me like this? And, and Eliphaz is saying, Job, that's just not the right attitude that a man of God should have. You know, you... Poor Job, he, he was suffering enough already, but the three friends are added to suffering by accusing him of, of a sin that he didn't commit and by telling him to do what he cannot do, which is repent. And so the rest of the chapter 
The rest of the chapter is great. It's, it's exactly what you ought to say to somebody that is sinning. It just doesn't fit when it's applied to Job. <laughs> Alright, so now Job, and I might as well just turn this off, that's all I've got. Um, Job answers, Oh, that my grief were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my calamity. Then it would be heavier than the sand of the seas. Therefore my words have been rash. What's he, what he's saying is, you know, Eliphaz, you're beating up on me for something I said after going through all this terrible suffering. You know, you know, that's not fair. And, and basically, if they're going to accuse Job of sinning, they need to go back before all the calamities happen and show what he did then. Not accuse him of, of uh, uh, an apparent lack of patience un, under the hand of God. I mean, he, he's... Um, and so that's what this speech is about. And so in verse 8, Oh, that my request might come to pass and that God would grant my longing. Would that God were willing to crush me. <laughs> and then verse 14, For the despairing man there should be kindness from his friend so that it does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. <clears throat> My brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi, like the torrents of wadis. In that area, they have these dry riverbeds called wadis. They have them out west in, in the U.S. as well. And in the spring, they'll just be flowing flush with water. Um, but then once all the snows melt from the mountains, there's no water left and they dry up. And sometimes they draw up earlier and other times. And so you have these, in verse 19, you have these travelers from Sheba. They're, they're, they're merchants, you know, you know, you can imagine with their camels you know, heaped up with stuff they're going to sell. And they know exactly how far they can go between water stops and they know where the water stops are. And they come to this wadi which usually has water and it doesn't. And they're in major trouble. And Job is saying, that's what you guys are, are like. You know, I, I hope for, for encouragement from you and look what I'm getting. Um, in verse 24 teach me and I will be silent and show me how I have erred and that's what of course they can't do in the the entire debate they can never show what Job has done that they are so convinced he's done because of their preconceived ideas about how God's justice must work and basically their ideas come from well if I was God this is why I would do it Um, but they're, they're convinced God does it that way Therefore, um, Job has done something even though they can't prove it. Um, in, in chapter 7, I mean, in chapter 7, Job again mourns his grief, his sad state. In verse 5, my flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. And that gives you more of an idea of this disease he was suffering from. Um, he talks to God in verse 7, Remember that my life is but breath. My eye will not again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. Your eyes will be on me. He's talking to God. But I will not be. When a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. Sheol being the grave. It doesn't mean hell. It just means the grave. It literally means the unseen place. Because you know when a person dies, you can't see where they're going. Um, he will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. Um, and then he, he again protests to God. Um, and so when he says, will you never turn your gaze away from me nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle, his view is that 
All these things are happening because God is doing things to him. And if God would just let him alone for a few minutes, he could have some peace. Of course, he doesn't, he doesn't know about that, the scene in heaven. He doesn't understand there's a competition going on between Satan and God. And in fact, he never finds it out. Even at the end, when God talks to him, God never tells him about this. God accepts Job's charge that God has done all this. And at the very end, God still accepts that. God doesn't say, well, well, Job, I was kind of over a barrel. You know, there wasn't much I could do to help you out, Satan and all that. that. None of that. God had complete control over this thing. God has control over Satan. And so what... Um, and God accepts it. It's just the question, is God right to do it? Is God just? Alright. Chapter 9. Bildad speaks up and he's a little bit... He, he comes on a little bit stronger than Elphaz. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your son sins against, sins against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. That's a low blow. I mean, all your kids died because they were sinners. They deserved it. What a way to comfort a guy. But that's what's happening in this debate. If you would seek God, I mean, Job, you can get out of this so easily. Just ask God. And of course, that's the one thing that God can't do because... He knows he hasn't sinned. Um, and so the rest of, of Bildad's speech is really a, a, a speech about how um, things don't happen for no reason. And, and, and they can see what's happened to Job. It's pretty obvious what the reason is. Um, Alright, chapter 9. Then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? Now, I need to explain here, this is not the same in the right that Eliphaz was saying that spirit told him. In chapter 4, verse 17, can mankind be just before God? What Job was talking about here in the right is in a court case. Basically in their debate, God's on trial. And the three friends think they're defending God. Of course, they're not. They think they're defending God. And and Job, he's not too happy having to debate them because they're not who he wants to debate. He wants to debate God. Where do you debate God? You debate God in court. But how could a man come to, in, to a court before God and ever be in the right? He doesn't mean, if I came to, into, into court with God, then the judge would say, I'm wrong. Not that at all. What he's saying is, there's no judge. God is as high as, as high as it gets. In fact, he, he mentions in um, toward the end of this, verse thirty-three: "There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both." And and so Job is faced with this problem that if God is wronging me, and it certainly appears like He is. I want to take God to court, and but how can I be in the right? There is nobody higher. And, and so he talks about how you know how God is. I mean, if one wished to dispute with him, verse three, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains, and, and he goes on like this. So God has all this amazing power. He commands the sun not to shine. He does all these things. Then in verse 11, were He to pass by Me, I would not see Him. Not only is He more powerful than anything we can ever imagine, He's invisible. You can't even see Him. How can you take someone like that to court? 
how can you argue your case? And so he goes on in verse 15, For though I were right, I could not answer. You see, Job is not saying, how can a man be sinless before God? He can, he's saying, how can a man be in the right in a legal contest with God? Now, if we leave God out of the picture, we have this problem on earth too. I mean, think back in the old days when you had the all-powerful kings. King does something wrong, who can you appeal to? Nobody. He's the highest there is. So we move the th- we move the whole thing up one step and we say, okay, God's over him. Of course, God's the one that moved it up one step, not me. But now Job is looking at that and saying, but what if God does wrong? And and Job, I mean, he's convinced that, Job, that God has done wrong to him. And he wants to argue his case before God, and, and I'm not sure what he hopes would come come from it. I mean, it's obvious here. He says, "This is never going to work. <laughs> there is no umpire between us, whom he lay his hand upon us both." And some people have observed an interesting point that the New Testament provides that provides a mediator between God and man. Now, of course, we understand that, in fact, God was not opposed to Job. It just looked that way. We have to understand that sometimes it's going to look that way in our own lives. This book of Job is not just for ancient times. There's times today when, when things happen in our lives and we say, I can't believe God would do that to me. And that's what Job is saying. I, I hope it's never anything as bad as what happened to Job, but there's lots of things that happen that are really, really bad without <laughs> approaching what happened to Job. But just very painful. Why, God? Why? And and just you know, it just keeps going and going, like Job is talking about here. So in, in chapter ten, he says, "I loathe my own life. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, Do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Is it right for you indeed to oppress, to reject the labor of your hands?" So the same appeal he's made all along that he hasn't done anything wrong, and yet, you know, God, you made me. Why would you now turn around and treat me like this? Now we have the third guy, Zophar. And he's very direct. This is chapter 11. Shall a multitude of words go unanswered and a talkative man be acquitted? Shall your boast silence men and shall you scoff and unrebuke? For you have said, My teaching is pure and I am innocent in your eyes. This is the point I was making. The the part, part I put in red on the board there. When the more Job declares his innocence, the more wicked he becomes in the eyes of his friends. <laughs> he cannot win. <laughs> and let me mention that this happens in, in real life. Um, in our court system, when a person is, is pronounced guilty by a jury, if, that pers- if the person will then make a speech to the judge and, and express his sorrow for what he's, he's done, the, the judge will give him a lighter sentence. If the guy, after all this, if the guy says, look, I'm, I'm innocent. I did not do that. To the judge, that's just evidence that the guy is worse than ever. And uh, the fact of the matter is, there are some people, I don't know how many, but there are some people in that situation in our court system who really are innocent. And the opponent, the judge, treats them as being even worse because they say they're innocent. 
And that's exactly what was happening to Job here. Um, so, um, in verse 13, if you would direct your heart right and spread out your hand to Him, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Obviously, if they think iniquity is in His hand. And then it will be so wonderful for you and all that. And of course, they're offering Him what, what they don't have any right to offer because He's not wicked. <laughs> and so this is where uh, Ralph was telling about how they enjoyed reading this. It's chapter 12. It's so funny to, <laughs> to hear Job. Truly then, you are the people... And with you, wisdom will die. <laughs> oh, yeah. It says, who does not know such things as these? You guys aren't think you're telling me such wise things. Everybody knows these things. Job has a deeper problem than anything they've ever faced before, and their wise platitudes don't touch the hem of the garment. So he says, I am a joke to my friends. The one who called on God and He answered him. The just and blameless man is a joke. He who is at ease holds calamity in contempt is prepared for those whose feet slip. This is so true. And it is such a danger for us today. I hope your life is going well right now. I hope things are going well for you. But there's a huge danger when things are going well for us. We look at someone who think life hasn't treated so nicely, and our thought is, well, if he was as good as I was, you know, he'd be okay. And that's what the friends are saying. You know, Job, if you were righteous like we are, you wouldn't have this suffering. And it wasn't true. Um, so, um, Job starts pointing out some examples for them. And this is going to keep coming back into the book. Verse 6, The tents of the destroyers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure, whom God brings into their power. He's, he's attacking one of their fundamental principles. Wicked people suffer. <laughs> and Job is saying, no, there's plenty of people who destroy. Well, think about those, those armed bandits who stole all of uh, his sheep and his camels and things. They're doing fine. They're prizing. They're enjoying all of Job's riches. He'll have to keep. He'll bring this up a number of times because those those three guys don't give up easily. <laughs> um, and then in verse thirteen, he has this great speech about God. With him are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. And I think he's trying, I think he's giving this speech so they'll understand that he has a very high view of God just like they do. See, every time he says he's innocent, they say, What a wicked person! You think God is not just. So he wants to show them, I have a very high view of God, folks, just like you have. And, and so he goes through like this, and, and we'll have to stop here because this is as far as we read. Um, but. Next week we'll finish this one and then you'll start the second round. Any last thoughts or questions before we close? I appreciate everyone's help.